World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Uh, thrilled to share these stories with you. As many of you know, this whole show precipitated from a trip that we took in 2016 uh, with a group that accompanied uh, four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations. We returned realizing that these stories need to be told uh, for this generation and for future generations, and hence we started to uh, interview and capture these stories of these World War II veterans. Thrilled to have on the line with me today, Harry Pete Shaw. He was part of the 283rd Field Artillery Battalion. Uh, He was a third wave of Omaha, which was the eighth day. They were the first mechanized group to go on to Normandy. Pete Shaw, welcome to the Americhicks with Kim Munson. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) You have quite a story. Uh, So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up, Pete Shaw? I grew up in Clearfield, Pennsylvania. I graduated there in 1943, but I, I was not drafted. I enlisted in the Army when I was 17 years old in December of 42. And by that means that I got to pick the, the outfit that I wanted to be in, the Air Force, Navy, or Marines. And fortunately, I was colorblind, so I had to take the Army. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I went in then on uh, uh, May the 29th. I went into, <clears throat> excuse me, our Indian Town Gap Induction Center. And after all the tests and everything, my they uh, sent me t- in the artillery. We went to Alabama, Dothan, Alabama. And when we got there, there was such a small barracks that had built because we were trying to hurry up to get the soldiers trained. We stayed in a place where they called Tar Paper City. They had four-by-fours in the ground with tar paper wrapped around them, and that's where we lived part of the time. You know what? You were the first World War II veteran to tell me about Tar Paper City. <laughs> so was that miserable? I mean, was it hot? I What was the accommodations like? Well, they had cots on the Cots right on the sand. Wow. They had showers outside and, of course, uh, porta potties, but uh, we was there until they got the barracks finished. Then we went into the barracks and uh, took uh, two months of training. Then they decided we had to go on winter, winter maneuvers, so we went to Tennessee. And uh, well, what a time that was. It, it rained. Seven out of 15 days. <laughs> wow. That's pretty and it miserable. it was muddy enough down there without in Murfreesboro. But from there we went to Fort Riley, Kansas. That's where uh, Custer's home was. And that's where we stayed, right where his, his farm was. And we got there, and they had just finished building a, a new barracks, and they called it Camp Funston, which is still there. We finished our training there, and that was uh, two months there. And then we they sent us to New Jersey. 
where we get on the Louis Pasteur overseas, and that was the third largest ship in the world then. The Queen Mary was the largest, and the Queen Elizabeth was the second. We went over and landed on England, and we went right, right straight to South Wales, where we took the rest of our basic training. And, of course, we jawed all of our supplies from there. We traveled. The hard part was driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> I bet. I, I, I knocked a few mailboxes over. <laughs> it was really nice over there. Uh, where we trade in South Wales is where they shot that movie, How Green Was My Valley. Oh, okay. What a, what a beautiful place. I could talk on it for two days and never tell you how beautiful it was. I remember it, seeing that movie, yeah. But it was. Of course, uh, the day come when we had to go up to the coast to go across the channel. That day finally came. Well, and Pete Shaw, explain to my listeners what the mechanized group was. What did you do exactly? We was the, the 283rd Field Artillery Battalion. Okay. That's, we had three cannon companies, a service battery, and a headquarters. And each one had their part to do, but we everybody in that outfit could do everybody's job, whether it was the, the cannon companies or the headquarters or service. I happened to be in service battery, where we were on the road 24 hours a day delivering supplies to the other batteries. And that was constantly with uh, delivering food, clothing, medical supplies, gasoline, ammunition, and, of course, the headquarters. They were responsible for doing all the electric work, doing all the the telephones and uh, the wirings. And, of course, the firing batteries, they had their job to do. Mm -hmm. The service battery was, was on the road 24 hours a day, going back and forth through France to get supplies to make sure that we had it ready. Well, and Pete Shaw, that really is what wins wars, is making sure that the troops are supplied well. Logistics is so important. Well, they are, believe me. But we was in action just as much as anybody, and we lost quite a few, just like the other batteries did, through the shelling at night and the bombing, and we drove was like, uh, oh, I'd say 60% at night, but there were no headlights. Mm-hmm. The lead truck would have a little flashlight. It was like uh, on a shield where it just showed maybe five feet ahead of their vehicle. Then at the end of each truck, there was, was what they were, were called a cat eye. It was a, a, a little light spot. It was a half inch wide and an inch long. And if you lost that, while you were trying to follow it, you were on your own. Wow. <laughs> and believe me, a lot of them did. Wow. But both of us managed, but it was pretty hard to try to keep, keep track of that light when you were getting shelled because they had, we used to call them Bed Check Charlie. They would ride around and find out where we were, then they would report it back to their headquarters. So and then they would shell you guys because of course they wanted that, to that's right. disrupt the supply lines to our troops. Yep. yep. Okay. 
let's continue on there since uh, you now have uh, you gotten to Europe. So you were eighth day in at Normandy. You were part of the third wave. When you got to, did you go in on Omaha Beach or Utah Beach? Utah. Okay. What? Well, that was the only one that mechanized divisions could go on. It was the most level. All the rest was, there were mountains, it's like they were straight up. Right. So that's why uh, uh, there were so many. Then the uh, tag cord and the, the other guns, and they followed us. But they took the 105s early so that we could help the infantry and the rangers that cleared the towns ahead of them. Okay. Pete Shaw, you're now, are you 17 or 18 at this time? I mean, you're I'm, just a I'm kid. I'm 18 now. I, I signed up in December of 42, and I was 17. In January, I became 18. Okay. So, as first of all, as D-Day began, so you, you waited eight days to go in, but what went through your mind? What did you hear as um, the, allied, the Allies moved uh, over to Normandy? What was going through your mind, and what did you know? believe me, what was going through our minds was just get the hell out of here and get on land. <laughs> uh, so were you in boats during that time waiting to go yes, on? Yes. We were for uh, nine hours. Okay. Nine hours. Uh, LST, they were in traffic. They would drop the gate and then we would drive off and up the beach. How about on the first day of Normandy, uh, the D-Day? Where were you on the very first day? On the, the first day? Uh-huh. After we landed? No, the first day of Normandy. Once Eisenhower had given the order. We were about three miles back from the coast. The infantry and the rangers, you know, they were all there first. Mm -hmm. What what a credit them fellows need, I'll tell you. I I make it broken up once in a while. But when we got there, it was just horrible to to what we've seen. Pete Shaw, what would you like to share with our listeners about what you saw when you got there? Well, there were bodies going into St. Louis. That that was the first battle with St. Louis and uh, Corinta. They were still some that hadn't been taken care of by the the squads. That that was part of their duty. There were so many, so many was lost. Some of our medics would drop off. But uh, we had to keep going. Right. So you had you, know, a, you had a job to do for those that that's right that that were living. Were, yes, that we had to help out. Okay. To shell. Okay. And it come to, uh, to one town was uh, the name of the, the city was uh, Dijon, and oh how I I wanted to see that so bad because this is an unbelievable story. My grandmother, when she was 16 years old, her mother and dad got killed, and that's where she lived. So her aunt sent her to America in 1842. Oh, my gosh. On a sailboat. And they went into Marseilles to get on it. Well, when uh, they were ready to sail, the captain says, married people go as one fair. And singles pay single. Well, my grandfather then was 21 years old. And he said, uh, my grandmother, do you have anybody? And she says, no, which she was just turned 16. He said, well, then let's get married. We'll split the fare. Oh, my gosh. He, 
he he was something. And it lasted for 56 years. Can uh, you believe that? Oh, my gosh, Pete Shaw, it, that it, just gave it, me chills. <laughs> oh, it, it just uh, it was obvious. She, they used to call her Grimham. Well, Grimham in France is grandmother. Okay. So we all called her Grimham. We had to level it. Yeah, <laughs> and you had to level Dijon, huh? Yep, they get the Germans out. I bet that was hard for you, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Knowing that I the, thought I was tickled to death to see it, but then when I, when we finished and went through it, why? Some of the emotions come up, but we had to do it, Grady. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Wow, yeah. that is quite a story. Uh, oh, there's so many of those stories that that I live with. They're unbelievable, Kim. Well, unbelievable. Pete, we've got uh, we've got about four minutes till okay. we go to the next break. Share another story. You said there's so many. What's another story that you can share with our listeners? There was uh, one when we were fighting through uh, Belgium, and uh, of course we had, like I say, a supply. And uh, there was a uh, a family there in Belgium that they wanted us to stay. It was raining and cold to stay in their house. Well, they had no food. So being a supply truck, we left them some K rations and, and some food, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Normandy here just this past month, a fellow came up to me and he says, you know what? He says, my mother told me, she, he, I was real young, that some some Americans stayed at their house and left food for them to eat. Now, whether that was us, I don't know, but isn't that if it would have been true? (laughs) Well, it very possibly could, but that, you know, that's another thing that the Americans, well, I was over in Normandy in 2016 with a group that uh, accompanied 4D-Day veterans, and what was so interesting to me, Pete Shaw, was how the French and the people from Belgium and also from the Netherlands still revere you guys. They still oh. teach their kids the stories, and they treat you like the heroes that you are. When I went over, uh, Donnie Edwards, the one that, that does this, uh, it called, they call it his... Uh, the Best Defense? Defense Foundation. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, P, I want you to wear your medals. But he says, especially, I want you to wear your two French medals, which is the French Laguardiere and the Legion of Honor. Those are the two highest medals that France has ever given anybody. Wow. And unbelievable when I was there, how they recognized them and come up to me. Wow. And They recognized them, them two medals. They said, oh, my God, you have both of those I said, yes, I said, I've been fortunate. But I said, I was fortunate, too, to have a lot of help. Yeah. And, oh, it was, it was so, oh, oh. it what? was really something. But how wonderful that they treated us. Well, and I want to talk with you about that because my understanding, Pete Shaw, is that you went back, as you mentioned just recently, with the Best Defense Foundation to Normandy yeah. for the 75th, but you'd not been back before then, right? No, I had not. Uh, we were going back at the 50th anniversary. My wife says, we're going back. Honey. Well, a month before, she developed cancer. Oh. 
and uh, she didn't make she didn't make it. So I didn't go back. Okay. But it is so wonderful what that done. He you know he was a a all pro football player for fourteen years, and he does this all on his own, his foundation. Well, it and he, and he sponsored everything, everything first class. That is so awesome. Hey, Pete Shaw, let's go to break. When we come back, let's continue on with your story. So we're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. It's Rocky season, and Hooters is a great place to watch all the games. Wednesday is wing day. All the wings you can eat for $14.99, and the smoked wings are delicious and only half the calories. And did you know that Hooters wings can fly? You can have Hooters wings delivered right to your front door. When the girls come over on Wednesday nights, I order Hooters wings, and uh, the girls love them. So order your Hooters wings to go, have them delivered right to your front door, or watch the game at Hooters. They have all kinds of TVs. So for more information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. And let them know that you know the Americhicks. Welcome back to the Americhicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. I have on the line with me Jim Ruse. He is a retired Marine. And Jim, welcome. Well, thank you. Tell us a bit more about the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation. Uh, the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation is the oldest uh, of the military uh, scholarship programs. It was started in 1962. Since 1962, we have issued tens of thousands of uh, scholarship awards, totaling over $130 million. Wow. So, and it's geared towards the children of Marines and those corpsmen who work with Marines. So anyone that uh, was a Marine, was honorably discharged, or a Navy corpsman who worked with Marines, their children are eligible for these scholarships. We're talking anywhere from 30000 to $40,000, and it doesn't matter what their age is. We have a Marine whose daughter uh, in her 30s went back to college, and the Marine Corps Scholarship uh, helped her. Jim Ruse, it's, it sounds like such important work, but to be able to continue with this, you need to raise money, right? Exactly. Everything is uh, done through donations, and so anything that uh, anybody can give is always appreciated. And that's why we're having this golf outing at the Inverness in South Denver, is to help raise money for this scholarship. Well, and this golf uh, tournament uh, is actually you get to do two things. You get to help with this scholarship foundation, but also you can get out and meet some new people and uh, hit the golf ball around. So, again, give us the details on that, Jim Roos. Okay. It is uh, August 6th at Inverness Hotel and Golf Resort in South Denver. It is on August 6th. We are looking for, for active people that like to golf, that uh, would like to help out either by sponsoring a golfer or by having their own foursome or just by donating money. Some of the people that are donating, they will just buy like a foursome and then they'll have Marines or corpsmen or Army or Air Force uh, veterans join in. Yeah, we're looking for people that really want to help out, and if they love the golf, even better. Okay, and where can they find that information, Jim Ruse? The best way would be online at uh, the initials for the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, mcsf.org. And when you get there, look up events, because it'll be right on the homepage, and then it'll show one of several golf and other events. Ours is the Colorado golf event. And then once you click on that, it'll come to contributions. 
And then whatever you can help with would be greatly appreciated. Okay, well, very good. Jim Roos, thank you so much for your good work on this important cause. And again, that website is mcsf.org. That's mcsf.org. Thanks so much. Semper Fidelis. I am thrilled to have on the line with me World War II veteran Harry Pete Shop. He was a member of the 283rd Field Artillery Battalion. He was third wave uh, of D-Day, so that he was in on the eighth day. And uh, he was part of the, the supply group of the 283rd. And Pete, before we went to break, we were talking about you just recently went back for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And uh, uh, it was quite an experience. People treat you guys like... I mean, like the heroes that you are. Uh, what are a couple of the takeaways that you'd like to share with our listeners regarding your trip back to Normandy well, this year? Well, first of all, uh, I, I got to say this, which was amazing. When we left the Akron Canton Airport, we flew to Chicago O'Hare. And from there, we flew in uh, Washington, D.C., the Dallas Airport, and from there into Paris. So when we got in Paris, the captain says, uh, Pete, he says, uh, you stay aboard for about 20 minutes. He says, the bus will wait before you go to Normandy. So I stayed there. And when, uh, about 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, here he come in with two cards. And them two cards says, welcome to United Airlines. And... Them cards have the signatures, the two big cards. They're about a foot square, each one of them. They have every employee's name signed on there. Welcome me on that trip. Oh, that is from so all, From all three airports. Oh, that is Isn't so that, special. Oh, I, that is that's a high place in, in my heart. Oh, that's... But then uh, what, what really started is when we left Paris, well, we went through Paris a little bit and seen some of the places, the Arts de Trump, but they took pictures. Of course, the Eiffel Tower, you couldn't get in. Uh, it was there, but we took pictures with it. The Notre Dame Cathedral, it was uh, half burnt, so we couldn't go in there. But all through the towns, going all the way down to Normandy, how they rebuilt them towns. It's amazing and, and how beautiful they are. They, the, the construction that they've done there, I, I just can't believe it. Really, I didn't expect to see all them cities like that. Uh-huh. And it was really something, especially to get down to uh, around uh, Normandy, that, that uh, Corenta. In St. Lowe, that you know, that were completely mm-hmm. leveled, and to see them cities, it just was oh, it really brought tears in your eyes that, that they could do something like that mm-hmm. to rebuild them. Well, and, it, and, and the people, they just swarmed us, and we were there for 12 days, and there was an itinerary made up for every day where we were going. We went to uh, four of the graveyards, the cemeteries, and uh, being one of the honored vets there, I, I played the re 
on uh, three of them. Oh. And the last one was all American. Well, that one there, uh, I'm sorry, I have three good friends, and I did get to see their marker with their name on them. And it, so uh, I just couldn't lay the read down and leave. So I told them all that I said, oh, I'm, I'm going back and I'm leaving you here, but not in my heart. So, oh. so they're so precious. Uh-huh. And I went to school with them all, all them years, but they're, they're well taken care of. They are, you know. It, it is, but and what they do with them, cemeteries, is, is you know, unbelievable. They are so beautiful. You know, they are such a solemn place, and they are oh. sacred ground. Oh, and, and there was a lady there. She was uh, 92 years old, and she came up and told me, she said, I've been taking care of these graves. And I will until I hit. And she said, I just wish that I could be here with them. Isn't that something? Oh, yeah, that... that 92 it, years old. That is something, Pete Shaw. <laughs> wow. Uh, let's let's move on a bit, and perhaps we can come back. There's so many interesting stories of your life. Let's go back to, though, during World War II. Normandy certainly was, was very, was big, but... but you continued on through northern France. And, oh, yes. And all, all through up through France. France in the, I, I served with Patton three different big campaigns. And, uh, of course, some of the biggest, biggest ones were probably up at the Bulge. Right. Uh, when, when we joined him up in Luxembourg. Well, and one of the things I'd heard about Patton, Pete Shaw, was that it w- he moved so fast that it was difficult to oh, keep the supplies uh, up with even, him. We, believe me, we was as close to the front as anybody could get, and we couldn't keep up. And in Belgium, he went so fast that we had to go back and get supplies. Well, when we went to deliver them to him, he was beyond the line. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And and he, we uh, we got there, so he says, "You're just in time." He he brought our cannon companies in, the the one just the one company e, e, A B and C Abel Baker and Charlie each had had three three guns, and he took two of them in, and he put them right by the forest, and he put them at ninety degree angles. Now that. The projector was almost straight up in the air, and and they put they have little pellets that they put in there, little powder uh, balls we call, and they would drop. He would so they would, you could drop nine in. Well, he dropped one in, and that thing went up, and it had come down about oh I'd say uh, less about fifty foot from the ground. It went off. Because they weren't point detonated, they detonated the air so they would get trapped. And it leveled the trees off. Well, you ought to see them run out. Wow! And if they didn't run out with their hands over their head, they didn't get very far. Wow! And he says, "I'm not losing any more men." <laughs> That's what he. So from then on, they called us the 105s with bayonets. <laughs> wow! Wow! 
so there was a lot. Oh, he was out there. I come, oh, within a couple hundred yards of him a couple of times, but that was as close. Because he was always riding. Yeah. So what was your, what's your opinion of Patton? Oh, he was great. He was great. Okay. He, he and, uh, and, and, and really half the time he wasn't dressed like a general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah. He, he was tough, wasn't he? Oh, yes, he was. But my understanding is is that his men knew that he wouldn't ask of you guys anything that he wouldn't do. Oh, he was right. He was right on the front. You know, uh, Eisenhower was one of the greatest military minds I think there ever was, and that that was his job. But you know, Eisenhower never seen one day of combat. I don't know how they know that, but that's nothing against him. Because what he done, he proved his wealth and his his that what he knew and how he coordinated that that D Day and all of the the armies. It's amazing that one man could have that that much fortitude, that that much knowledge. Well, and many there's many that think that the divine provider, you know, has had he's had his hand on. Uh, American generals throughout our history, there are those that think that the divine provider was uh, helping out in D-Day as well. Yeah, yeah. And 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 Marshall was another great one that was back in the states coordinating what Eisenhower wanted. You know, so they he really had a group of men that that knew what they were doing. So. Were you ever scared, Pete Shaw? Were you ever afraid? Absolutely. Uh, sometimes uh, they would uh, even send us up for foreign observing. Now that would be at, at night or dusk to go up and over to see what we could see what was ahead of, of us. At this one time, I don't know uh, what happened, but we got shelled. So anyhow, they, there was a lieutenant, and then there was me, then there was a, what they call a runner. Well, the runner was in case the phones didn't work, the radios. Okay. Then the runner would take the message back. Wow. When the runner, the phones did not work for some reason, and the runner started back, but he didn't make it. Wow. And the two of us did. So how did you how did you make it? Did you end up in a firefight, or did you just lay low? Or oh yeah, oh yeah, they did. When they when they stopped shower, why? Then the way we went, okay. we we left the vehicles about oh, I'd say a quarter of a mile away. You know, they mm-hmm. went by foot. Well, let's talk a little bit about Battle of the Bulge. Then that was my understanding is it was really really cold. It was. It was December. It was uh, right, right before Christmas, around the uh, 8th or 9th of December until about the 24th, something like that. It was cold. And what was your role at Battle of the Bulge? We, was, uh, we took supplies in. We wasn't with the Pat and that, but we was with the 7th Army. And we uh, had uh, supplies, you know, shells, ammunition for, for them. And we, we served it to them. It, 
a stone and a couple of the other cities. Then we'd go to a, a, another, maybe the 430 uh, armor division and see if you know what they need anything. One of the trucks had ammunition, the other one had gas. Okay, so Pete, explain it to me. My understanding was that some of our guys were pinned down at Bestone and that the skies were, you know, it was really cold and the skies were very cloudy. We couldn't get any air support in. So where were you at in all of that? We were about 15 miles from there. And uh, we had clothing and stuff, but it was so bad, the weather, that we couldn't move and so wet and muddy that uh, even the, in our trucks were six-by-sixes. That means they were six-wheel drive, some of them. And uh, it was so hard to even see. And, of course, like I think you couldn't use light. You had your lights on, like, they'd blast you right out of there. Uh-huh. So uh, we tried a couple that do it by uh, land, by feet, you know, to walk, and it was impossible. Mm-hmm. Did you have the proper equipment? Because my understanding is some of our soldiers did not have, you know, good winter wear. They didn't. How about you? A lot of them didn't. Well, it was so hard for the infantry to carry that stuff. Where we was fortunate, we had a truck, we could put extra stuff on it. You know, if anything, we had a much, oh, we had it way easier than the infantry, but still, we still lost, too. We lost people. They had nothing to carry that stuff for them. It so, was all backpack, all backpack. Wow. So, you know, there's this famous quote regarding the commanding officer at Bastogne when he was received the request from the Germans to surrender. Or, surrender. Uh, surrender, and he said nuts. Yeah. That, that's the truth. Okay. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. And yeah. when, when did you hear that story? Was it right as it happened, or when did you hear that story? No, about two days after, two days into the fight. They, they call him Mac. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Gave people a lot of heart, though, too, didn't it? Yes. When were you guys able to push into Bastogne then? Oh, well, it was about two days later. They finally got some support, and uh, they moved in a, uh, a ACAC gun outfit. They used to call them multiple sixes. It was, it was like a boom, 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 boom. They would shoot like that. Okay. The distance wasn't that far, but they didn't want a distance one. They wanted one that, that maybe for 500 yards, and they'd done the trick. Okay. That in the, the, the 37 millimeters, they really paved the way. Okay. What did you see when you got into Bastogne then? Well, a lot of destruction. You know, a lot of people don't know, but the Battle of the Bulge, we lost 90,000 people. Wow. Yes, and they claim the Germans lost the same amount. That's a lot. That is a lot. That was his final push Right. that, that he was building up, and he was going to surprise the world and uh, show them that he's not done. Well, he was done. But that just prolonged it. It just prolonged it. So yes. and after Battle of the Bulge, then you continued on, correct? Yes. Okay, okay. You know what? I think we're going to go to break, um, Pete Shaw. And when we come back, let's talk about uh, what happened as you moved on. This is Kim Munson. 
with the World War II Project. I'm talking with World War II veteran Harry Pete Shaw, part of the 283rd Field Artillery Battalion. Uh, we've talked about him uh, as he went on to Normandy uh, eight days after the initial entrance of the Allies onto Normandy, and then also Battle of the Bulge. He served with Patton, uh, and as a being part of the supplies, it was difficult to keep up with Patton because he moved so quickly. Pete Shaw, this is a fascinating story. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll have our final segment. Hey, welcome back to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. Thrilled to have on the line with me Harry Pete Shaw. He's just a kid in World War II. He's part of the 283rd Field Artillery Battalion. He was at Normandy. He was at Battle of the Bulge. Pete, let's continue on with your story then. What happened after Battle of the Bulge? Well, we went uh, down through uh, Germany to the well, it went in and started taking over. After the road got opened up to go in, we in uh, Munich and Frankfurt, Mannheim, clearing the, to Berlin. Okay. There was, there was no stopping Pat. He just he just kept going and going. And the sort of Seventh Army, Seventh Army, the Third Army, the First Army, they were they were all on the all on the run. They all had the support and the supplies were always there for them. Wow. Support and supplies. Now, you were some of the guys that helped liberate Dachau, correct? We were the first unit in there. The uh, 3rd Army was still with the 3rd Army. They thought it was an ammunition depot or an ordnance depot, and they wanted it... uh, to go in there and check it and see what what it really was. Well, when we got in there, there was only two German vehicles there, and we didn't see any vehicles. And as soon as we got in, there was that odor. So anyhow, uh, I stopped our three trucks, and I said, there's something wrong here. This is no ordnance plant, you know, because we didn't see any weapons or anything. And uh, looked over there, and here's smoke and like dust coming out of the, this flue. It was like 30 feet in the air. And all of a sudden, there was one shot fired from inside of the building. Of course, we all got out of the trucks. There was five men in each truck. And uh, we all got out and, and lined up. Well, there was three Germans come out with their hands over their head. And there were five that were coming out with guns in their hand. Well, like I say, they're still there. Mm-hmm. And here we found out what it was. We liberated 127 prisoners. I swear, as true as I'm sitting there, they had a trench that was at least 20 foot long, 4 foot wide, and 5 foot deep. And that was filled with bodies half alive, half dead. They had about 30 cattle cars that were loaded with prisoners, displaced persons, even he cremated cripples that that couldn't help him. Can you believe something like that? Crippled children. And we called headquarters right away, and they said, well, you uh, red tape that off. That was put tape. And I don't want anybody taking pictures. If they do, you see that they're court-martialed. Well, they said, because we want to use that again, the Germans. 
and you know, at the Nuremberg trials, they use that very film. Well, you said no pictures, but somebody took pictures. Well, the art they did when when the headquarters come down. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. What about in in Pete? If any of this is too difficult to talk about, just tell me. But um, the cattle cars were they filled with living people? Living, half dead, half dressed. I would say there were children there, fourteen, fifteen years old, maybe even younger. But but like I say, to see uh, a child with braces on, those that did have them, that were crippled in some way or or another. And, you know, they had Germans in there, too, that did agree with him. Uh. They were in there, a poly, but the most, most of everything was what they called the German Jews. Because he eliminated every one of them from the country, which is factual, because we see that. And they said the couple that we did liberate, which is a story I got to tell you later, that we liberated, they said that Hitler was so afraid because they were all like wealthy people, you know, Mm -hmm. that he was going to buy enough people to either assassinate them or take over his country. Wow. And they they said that was his reason to get rid of the, the Jews. Wow. What What's the other story that you wanted to tell us? Well, I was here in, in Canton, Ohio. I, I read in the paper where uh, is uh, Joe Tuckeltraub. He was the head of the Holocaust, and he was going to Cleveland. He says, I was liberated from Dachau. I said, my God, I got to go and talk to this. He was a Jewish fellow, very, very nice. And I went and knocked on the door, and I said, I would like to talk to Mr. Turkeltraub, Joe. And his wife says, well, I'll call him. And I went in, I says, I never met you, and you never met me. But we did meet. We met at Dachau. We both hugged. Wow. <laughs> kind of cried a little bit. And he says, yes, I was one of the 127. And he says, oh, wait a minute. It wasn't Dickau I was in. He says, I was in, in Auschwitz. That was the other German. Mm-hmm. They had five concentration camps and crematories yeah. throughout Poland and Holland. And and he says, but I, I was in Auschwitz. And I said, well, but he says, oh. So I went to some of the seminars with him. But he would go to Cleveland because he headed uh, northeastern Ohio. The Holocaust. Okay. And uh, I went with him, so we became very good friends. Wow. And uh, he appreciated me by, you know, going with him. And I said, well, I love to. But uh, imagine that, him over there in the Holocaust and, and doing all that work. And he says, I, I got to let them know that what they heard or read was not a false right. falsified. It was true. Right, right. And he said, here you are to back me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what happened after Dachau for you, Pete Shaw? We went back in the, to France. There, our outfit was a little smaller, so they broke us up. And then I went to a, a different artillery. It was uh, 18th Field Artillery. The outfit was filled up. And from the 18th Field, I, I went to the 41st infantry division and that's where I, I ended my army career okay overseas was with them by then we were scheduled uh, 
to go to Japan. And they said, well, the war was over, you know. They said, we're scheduled to go to Japan. Truman dropped that bomb. Mm -hmm. And uh, two days later, they announced we're we're going home instead of Japan. Nice. So that boat, we never left it, and away we come home. (laughs) I come home in a little uh, victory ship. It was the Victory Madawaska. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> what went through your mind when you, your feet uh, was on American soil again? Uh, of course, uh, my mother and father and them never knew it. When we left Fort Dix, where we landed, two of my uh, Army buddies were still with me that lived in uh, Philadelphia, so I stayed in their house overnight because we got in. It was uh, all about 7.30 at night, and the docks was just filled with, with people knowing that Boats had started to come back, so we stayed there. The next day, I got on the train and, and come to Canton, Ohio, and it was uh, 11.30 at night, and I come and I knock on my dad and mother's home, and they had no idea. So my brother answered the door, and he said, oh, my God, he, he almost passed out. Oh, wow. Instead of calling them, and, which I should have done from the... Uh, railroad station that I was here, you know. Sure. And then, of course, he'd give me hell right away. He said, why don't you call me? I'll come and got you. I said, in a cab. Uh, <laughs> I said, boy, hold I said, you ain't never changed. Uh, <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That brings so, tears yeah, to my eyes, just thinking about it. It, it. Was, was so good to, to get home. It was, well, unbelievable. My... Because my mother and father then were both in their middle seventies. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so. that's quite a story. I'd like to switch gears just a little bit because you have another very interesting thing about you, and that is is that you're a baseball fan, and you were very good friends with I remember uh, Thurman Munson. Uh, his name spelled differently than mine. Yes, but- I know. My daughter-in-law said, "Dad, she says hers is M O." Thomas is M U. Right, right. <laughs> is that right? That's right. But yeah, he's... His, yeah. Well, he was a good friend of mine. His father-in-law and mother-in-law were very good friends of mine, and uh, we only lived about on twenty-fifth and Myrtle, and I lived on twenty-third uh, and Myrtle. So we were, you know, real close all them years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dominic was. We used to call him Toto. Dominic was in Diane. That was her maiden name, Munson. So we knew them real well. My son, Skip, had had a barber shop in Greentown, and that was less than two miles from where Thurman crashed his plane. Well, and he was he only was, 32 he years old. That Lear jet, and he was learning to take off and practice and take off. He wasn't qualified yet to solo, but he had two other people. In, in the plane with him, and the the third time that he tried to you know land, he was too low and hit the top of the trees and right into the bank. Mm-hmm. Well, they got out, but he was pinned in yeah. back of the, the gear in the seats, and they couldn't get him out. Yeah. Well, and he was just he was young. He was thirty two years old. Thirty three years old. Right. But he was the first captain on the Yankees team since Lou Gehrig. Yeah, and he... Uh, and that was a long time. Oh, and Thurman Munson today still has a batting average record 
of uh, World Series games. Yeah, I remember his career. I remember his career. So. Oh, he, oh, he was a nice kid. Yeah. Oh, he was. He went to a little college here, Kent University, you know. And he and, was one of the famous New York Yankees. And yeah. uh, I thought that was yeah. quite a story. So, hey, um, we're going to be out of time here very soon, Pete Shaw. So there's just a few other questions that I wanted to ask you. And first of all, what would you say? You are, you're 95, right now? Yeah. Do you remember that? Okay. What would you say to our young people in America today? Well, I'll tell you, I think that when they graduate high school, really they should serve one year in the service. I really do. And I go to the Mission Barbecue a lot here. They cater to the veterans. And you can't believe how many that are in there, either in the National Guard or they're training, you know, they're in school. And uh, especially in the summer, they go to summer camp. And to see them young kids in them uniforms, you know, I can't, I could never thank them enough. Because I says, you you young kids are going to continue what we put a stop to. And they says, you're right, and we will. Oh, that gives gives a lot of heart. Oh, oh yes, and, and they're you know so beautiful and young. They are beautiful I, and I young. I got to call them beautiful because they are in them outfits. Yeah, the girls too. Yes, the young girls in there. Just, you see, well, we want to be a big part of this too. You know, one says, "Well, I don't want to be a nurse, so." <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, my wife was a nurse for 66 years, and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. So, <laughs> hey, a couple more questions. Uh, I did see as I was doing some research that when you were back in Normandy just recently for the 75th, that there was a German soldier that wanted to meet you. Tell us just oh, a little bit about that awesome. story. You can't believe even uh, the television cameras were there. It was next to our, our, our last presentation that we'd done on any doing, they uh, said that we're going to end this in about a half an hour. Well, in the meantime, this I was sitting on center stage, and this boy came up to me. Well, not a boy. He was about 60, 65. <laughs> and he says, Mr. Shaw, if I would bring my father down here, would you talk to him? He was in Norm- on uh, uh, with you. He fought where you fought on the... And I says, uh, why, sure. So he says, but he was on the other side. And I said, well, you bring him down. So he brought him, his name was Eric. I can't, I couldn't pronounce his last name. <laughs> but his name was Eric, and he says, I'm Eric. And I said, Eric, I'm Pete. And I held up my hand to shake hand, and he was kind of a little hesitant. I says, hey, you had to do what you did. I had to do what I did, and that's all over. And he looked at me and he told to me a big hug. Uh-huh. And he says, thank you for that. Thank wow. you. And he says, I was on Utah Beach, too. And he was a German on said, Utah well. Beach. And we talked for 20 minutes. He ate his dinner with us. Uh-huh. And uh, there were movie people there taking pictures of that. That was what they're doing when they said, Donnie Edwards says, Pete, I got a surprise for you. We're, we're going to go someplace. So here we went to this town. Oh, people all over, but they had a little stage built up, and it was like uh, 30 foot by 30 foot high, 
and they had six French girls and six French boys jitterbugging, tickling Miller music. Can you imagine that? Uh, that's fantastic. And so anyhow, Donnie Edwards, he took my hand and took me right up on the stage to Pete, show them how it's done. <laughs> Can you believe that? So this one boy, she could really dance, but he was just turning her around. So I tapped him on the shoulder. He said, what's that? And this is a tap dance. When I tap you, it's my turn. <laughs> and she could talk English and understand it. And as we were dancing, I'd tell her what I was going to do. So they were playing uh, Chattanooga Choo Choo. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, we got one more number to play. We're going to play Rock Around the Clock. Oh, boy. That was one of my favorites, the children. So you know what I done? I kicked my shoes off. <laughs> And I'm dancing on my bare feet, or in my stocking feet with her, and everybody stood up, and nobody got on that dance floor but us, and they were just watching, and, and oh, it was really... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Harry, yeah, and, and here, we're back home, and here, didn't somebody call my daughter-in-law and said, did you see Pete on TV dancing with his shoes off? And here it was already on TV. Oh, that is awesome. So, hey, Pete Shaw, we are out of time. World War II veteran, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. This is just, this is gold. I so greatly appreciate it. Tim, this was an honor for me, believe me. Well, Pete Shaw, thank you so much, and God bless you, and And God God bless bless America. And I love you. I love you, you. too. Okay, thank you. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.